Uh, and so this morning is kind of an odd morning for us as we're done with Mark and we're now moving on to topical messages uh, until after the first of the year. Um, and by topical, I mean we'll take a passage of the Bible, not just work through it. We don't just pick topics and talk about them. Working through the text of Scripture in a more topical way. And this morning, uh, I will be working through how do we trust that what our Bible, that book in your hand, says is the Word of God? How do you know that? And it comes at a particularly helpful time because, as I said last week when we finished Mark, uh, Mark 1, or rather Mark 16, 8, is uh, by all assessment the end of the book of Mark. By faithful assessment in, in reading Mark and looking at the evidence of what's here, verses 9 and on, sometimes shorter in translations, sometimes longer, but verses 9 and on uh, were not original parts of the text. And there should be no fear for us, no concern for us. I think it's really helpful when Bible translators uh, include notes like this that tell us here's an area where you need to realize what, what's going on and, and its inclusion and, and think about that. And so this morning, as we finish Mark, and most of your Bibles includes this statement before these verses that follow, verses 9 through 20, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. If you have a ESV, it's probably a, a heading. Uh, if you have an NASB, uh, it's probably a heading. It could also be like an asterisk that tells you that. You have a, uh, probably even a New King James at this point. Most Bibles will make a mark there to tell you uh, this portion, Mark 16, 9 through 20, is not in the earliest manuscripts we have. Um, and I might, as I said that last week, you might hear that and say, I don't even know what that means. What does it mean it's not in the earliest manuscripts or some of the manuscripts we have? And so as it says that in your Bible, not the Bible, that's not a heading in the Bible, but that says it in your Bible, I thought it would be helpful to address what does that statement mean and how do we deal with such things? And to do that, you need to think about where your Bible has come from. What, what is the Bible that we hold in our hands? What are these 66 books that we hold as the authoritative Word of God? And so this morning, not in the full context, there's no way for me to give you all of that in just 55 minutes on a Sunday morning, but dealing particularly with these passages, thinking about manuscripts, evidence, and original copies, and the authority of the Word of God, we're going to walk through that together this morning. Uh, and so while it's not what we normally do, it's my prayer it will be both an encouragement to you uh, and, and I, I don't know how to like just, well, I know how, but I refuse to do it, to just give you some kind of educational lecture. And so we're going to look to seek to understand and apply how should we then approach the Bible. Under application, you'll see 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 15. So let me pray for our time together. And then we will uh, continue. I'll read these verses, uh, 16, 9 through 20, and then we'll talk together about everything I just kind of summarized in the beginning. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll move to this text. Lord, we thank you for your grace and faithfulness over all things, God. So, so often in my mind recently in, in the Gospel of Mark, thinking of the life of all those saints at the end of the book, I've been reminded of your care and providence. 
so often as Christians and Western thinkers and uh, faithful and, and spiritual people, we are tempted to think you only work in miracle. We're tempted to only say we see your hand when things happen that we can't explain. And I pray, Father, you would give us faith that would trust you in all circumstances, Lord, and when you act in both that which we cannot explain and, and we know is, is a miraculous work of your hand and just in the day-to-day -day providence of your kindness over us. I pray, Father, you would help us uh, to be diligent, that we would rightly handle your word, that you would give us a carefulness uh, to how we approach the word of God, uh, that you would help us to live in a reverent fear, knowing you were holy, uh, and in a right fear, knowing that we have been redeemed by the blood of your Son. I pray you would give us endurance, should it be necessary this morning, Father, as some of us are, are easily frustrated and, and fail to uh, depend on these things. I pray you would give us humility, Father, as some of us just too quickly want to argue and, and work through arguments. I uh, thank you, Father, that you have commanded us uh, through your word. I thank you that you've made clear to us the authority of your word, that you've given us your spirit to work in us individually and together as a body. Uh, pray, Father, as I uh, preach and seek to encourage your body that you would faithfully, providentially work in all of your people, work in their hearts and their lives, uh, that you would be glorified through our lives together and individually. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So if you look down at your Bible, as it includes probably Mark 16, 9 through 20, uh, I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll discuss what do we do with such a text. Mark 16, starting at verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen." And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and they will drink deadly poison, and it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So this week, as we look at this text, uh, I, I want to remind you again, as you see in the beginning of your Bible, it says some of the most early manuscripts do not include this. And so what do we do? Let's start first by just thinking about how we consider the Word of God. If you look at uh, your, your handout in context, I put two points there from our doctrinal statement of 
just our declaration as a church, our confession or our statement that says, this is how we view the Word of God. If you're looking on the digital form, I included the entire doctrinal statement. But for the sake of ink and printing, I didn't include the whole thing on here. You can get that on the church website, um, and you can see the whole doctrinal statement. But two that would be important to us this morning. First, uh, inerrancy. So inerrancy means the scriptures are absolutely without error in any part in the original. And so we believe all scripture is breathed out by God, that it is profitable for rebuke and for instruction, for correction, for teaching, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. We, we know this, not from our doctrinal statement, from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the Scripture are the very words of God. And they are intentional and they are profitable for us to be increased in instruction and understanding. But as you look at that and look at the way that we define it there, it says, in the original. Right? And so this is, often we make jokes, and people make jokes, they pick their translation, and they say things like, this morning we're going to read from the King James Version, Paul's version of the Bible, right? Or this morning we're going to, they say in a hipper voice, then we're going to use the ESV, because that's the version Paul used, which is like a really lame joke, because it's not even that old. But we think of those as, this is Paul's, this is the authorized, this is the one, and sometimes we're confused because even on my Bible right here, it says ESV, English Standard, what? Version. Well, this isn't a version of the Bible. When you have a New King James and I have an ESV or you have an NASB, you don't have a version of the Bible. What, what do you have? A translation of the Bible. It's not a version it's not someone's choosing and what does the Bible say. It's a translation, taking what the Greek text is, what Paul wrote in the New Testament, and translating that to English. So why do we have so many different versions in English? Because we are a wealthy people. Because we, are, we live in a blessed time where there is printing and scholarly work and all of that available, that we can have varied translations to say, in the Greek it says this, but it would be better to understand this in the English or the original language. And so when we talk about the original, we are first and foremost, we're talking about the original language, the Greek or the Hebrew or in some places Aramaic in the Bible. Those original writings, the writings of Paul. And then when we talk about the original writings, we're not only talking about both the original, but you see, like in your Bible, it says, or it could say, manuscripts. So what's the difference between an original and the manuscript? When we say the original, we could be speaking of the original language in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. We could also be speaking of the original autographs. This is the actual writing. So Paul's actual letter to Ephesus. Moses' actual writing of the Torah. That's the original autograph. Okay. Now, it's no shock to anyone, or it shouldn't be, we don't have those. We don't have the original autographs. We don't have the letter 
that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. What we do have is manuscript evidence, and you can see actually in the book of Colossians, it's helpful as Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, read this book also to the church of Laodicea, and you read the letter that was written to them. Paul recognizes at the point of his writing, this is valuable for them also. As I often say when I'm preaching through a text, I say this was not written to us, but it was written what? For us. And so we are not the church of Ephesus. The letter was not written to us, but it was written for us. And the authors of Scripture and the receivers of Scripture recognized that these letters had that point. They were written to a specific people, but they were written for God's people. And that would be the doctrine of inspiration. Again, from our doctrinal statement, it says, Inspiration is the Holy Spirit worked through the individual personalities and our different styles and human authors so that they composed and recorded God's Word to man. Inspiration extends to the very selection of words of the Scripture. And where Jesus says, Not one jot or tittle or dot or iota, not the smallest point of grammar will pass in the Word of God. Or as Peter says here in 2 Peter, that knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. It's not just a man's ideas about what God has said. But, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, Paul's letter to the Ephesians were not just his ideas, but he is writing under the authority of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. The same as Moses is not just recording his ideas, but he is writing under the authority of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, the written word of God. And so these two truths are incredibly important, inerrancy and inspiration. That the, the Bible is without error in the original, and it is inspired, or it is the work of the Holy Spirit for God's people. And that is done not through some miraculous, overwhelming work always. It is often done just through God's faithfulness and providence to the people. And so you have the prophets, where often it is a miraculous work. You have Ezekiel instructed, Isaiah instructed, write these things, right? And they're writing those things. You also have the epistles and other places where the prophets are writing, and they're writing in not, not direct instruction from God, but in their own personalities, their own writings, under the, what we'd say is the superintendence of the Spirit. The Spirit of God working those things to be written. And so, I'm not saying these things thinking, I'm saying something really controversial to Faith Bible Menifee, right? I'm just reaffirming to you, this is what we believe. If these things appear controversial to you, that the Bible is inerrant and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, I would say you've got to ask yourself, am I a Christian at all? Because this is what Christians believe. Uh, this is the authority of the Word of God. This is what Christians have always believed. This is not new. The idea is that the Bible is not authoritative, not inerrant, and not inspired are new ideas. Um, and people in the name of being a Christian would proclaim such things. So they're not new. 
It's just us restating what the church has always believed. And as we do in our doctrinal statement, and most Christians have done, they point from the text to say, this is why we believe that. So I'm not going to go into all the arguments that are made often about, well, why would you believe that and why can you all do that? I'm just affirming to us, we believe this. Uh, And I'm making the assumption, not everybody in this room might believe that, but if you're with us, if your hope is in Christ, if you're a Christian and you function at FBC Menifee, this is your belief. I'm not taking a drink for dramatic pause. I'm taking it so that we don't have a more dramatic pause when I start coughing. So, uh, if you look with me then, uh, what do we do then when we have our versions of the Bible that give us notes like this? When we have a translation that says, here's this note, here's this thing here, uh, these verses, 9 through 20, most early manuscripts don't include. Well, let's consider what we talked about a little bit already when we're talking about Original autographs versus manuscripts. So an original autograph would be if we had Paul's writing to Ephesus, that's the original autograph. That's Paul's letter, like with his own hand. What was instructed to the church and what the church has always done is made copies of that. They've written it down and given it to others. Just like we see that instruction in Colossians, give this letter to the Laodiceans and let it be read there too. They would record it. The people who did this in the ancient world, uh, in all the ancient world, were called scribes, right? It's not until the 1500s we have the printing press where people just put things in, run it through a machine, right? I didn't write all of your handouts this morning or make your coloring pages, for that matter. That's my notes on a Sunday morning. It's just printed on the other side. But I ran them off a printer. Well, printers have not existed. So what was done to record writing was scribes. People who worked as human printers, like if you think your job is mundane and you're just doing the same thing over and over again, try being a scribe. You're just a human copy machine. You're just writing it over and over and over again. And this is how any text would be recorded. So when we talk about manuscript evidence, we're not talking about we have the letter from Paul, but we're talking about manuscripts, written copies of that letter, how that letter would be distributed and given and written. And that's what manuscript evidence means. And so people often talk about the Bible as though uh, in in, uh, 360-something, I didn't put it in my notes, uh, that Constantinople decided this was the Bible. And that Rome somehow compiled the Bible and gave it to people. And people make these arguments, which are just foolish historically. No historian believes that's where the Bible came from, Rome in the 300s. No historian believes when they see our Bible that this was one man that sat down and wrote a book. It's not a historical argument. It's not a historical argument that this was just Paul's ideas or just someone's ideas or some teacher. There are books and religious texts that people hold to that that is the very declaration of what they've done. And it's not a holy text. It is just the ideas of one man. But this book, it's not argued by anyone. Uh, that understands what they're arguing, that this was just a church's or someone's idea to say, oh, we're going to write all these things down and pretend like they came from ancient times. This is a compiling of 66 different books written at various times. As Hebrew said, that God spoke in various times and in various ways and through these last days through his son. It is the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is God's works 
in speaking to his people from uh, the beginning and recorded by Moses through the apostles to the book of Revelation, the last writing from John. No one argues this text is a work of just a man. Now, some would argue that's the work of many men. Uh, we would declare that God used those, not like many men, not like tiny little people, but many men. And God used those men to record his word. And so, like all historical document, the word is preserved through manuscript evidence. It is preserved through scribes taking that work, rewriting it for the distribution to others. Now, Christian, you have a lot to be encouraged about in this fact. Because this has more evidence that it is true and it is accurate and it is God's work. It's far more faithful for him to give us this in the way it is with manuscript evidence to declare there is no denying that this is what it says it is. No denying. He is faithful in providence to have decided and chosen how he has communicated to us through the word. As Christians, we make silly arguments like we want God. We say, well, if God would just come to me and just tell me, right? We think the way to understand God best is if I had some supernatural experience where he just made that clear to me. And the problem is what we would do if everyone had that experience. Say it was you turn 13 and then God makes a divine revelation to you. What would we do? What do we do when God functionally, faithfully acts to his people to reveal himself? We explain it away. All nature communicates to everyone that he exists, that he is all-powerful, that he's made all things. Romans tells us that. And what do we do? We come up with theories like evolution. We come up with ways to say, oh no, that exists because of this. No, that, that, that's, not, that's just a weird thing that happens to teenagers. We would come up with some way to say, no, that's, that's not it. But what does this do? This declares from generation to generation. It communicates in an authoritative way that cannot be changed by men. Because there's far too much evidence for what it said. An authoritative way that each generation is not dependent upon the generation before, but is dependent on God as it always is, and is cared for by God by the preservation of His Word. Generation to generation. Now, I want to show you some just written facts that I think are helpful for this. So you see a little chart in your handout. And that chart declares, it, it states, a bunch of ancient works, right? Some of you, I know, you're like classical education people. You look at all these names and you're like, yes, I know them. Some of me, uh, some of me, <laughs> some of you are more like me, your public school kids. You're like Homer Simpson? No, 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 no. Not that Homer. Oh, Homer, like the one that I had to read at school sometime. And then I hoped that there was a movie of the Odyssey so I didn't have to actually read the book. That Homer. Aristotle, you're probably familiar with that word. Maybe not his works. You just know other people talk about him. Uh, Caesar, Plato, all these guys. And so these are all ancient texts still used in our understanding of ancient history and uh, what has happened. And then with them, the ancient texts, which are different than these, the Old Testament and the New Testament, divinely inspired. And I want you to notice some things about these texts. 
So you take our most reliable ancient text, Homer, the Odyssey. And so you take that. It was written about 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have of that is 500 years later. Okay? 500 years later. So you have a span of 500 years, and that's from 400 B.C. If we take all the copies we have of Homer, and we put them together, how many copies do we have? 643 copies. Okay? And now, same with Plato. Do the same thing. So you look, when was it written? When was our earliest copy? It was written 375 B.C., earliest copy 900 A.D. So what's the span between the original writing to our earliest copy? The span is 1,275 years. And how many copies do we have that span from then to now? 20 copies. So if you're reading Plato, like I had to at my alma mater, uh, University of Menifee, Mount San Jacinto, and you read Plato, and your history teacher is telling you these are the words of Plato. You can trust that. He's basing that off of 20 ancient documents that record Plato, that the earliest is 1,275 years removed from Plato's original writing. And our society is confident these are the words of Plato. Now, you could look at the others and see how many copies, how much of a span separated. And I want to point you down to the New Testament and Old Testament. So Old Testament, original writing between 1400, 400 B.C. How many copies do we have? More than 2,000 copies. And what's the span between that original writing to when our earliest copy is? 400 years. Okay. Same with the New Testament. Original writings between 40 and 90 A.D. Our earliest copy points back to 125 A.D. And what is the span between our earliest copy and the original writing? 75 years. So if you're looking at these texts, just as a historian, there is no question that we have more valid evidence that the New Testament and the Old Testament say what the original autograph said than any book in history. Because God's people have always seen God's Word as authoritative from Him. And so they have made effort to copy and to distribute God's Word. When it was laborsome, and even now, when it's far more easy, right? We translate in different translations. We get as many people's hands as we can. We make Bible programs. We make software. We make all kinds of things to get God's Word available. What does that mean then, evidentially? Well, it means, in evidence, that we have what was originally written with more surety than any other ancient text. And, and discoveries of ancient texts only confirm that. And so one of the most recent, in the 1940s and 1950s, you have the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some shepherd boy is throwing rocks, because that's what kids do, and he hits something in a cave. And they go up into that cave and they find that these are scrolls in, in barrels. I was reading an article this week about it. It's interesting because at some point in the early 1940s, or late 1940s, maybe early 1950s, an article ran in the New York Times saying, we have a scroll of the ancient text of the Bible for sale. And somebody should buy it for an educational institution. Because... Some historian bought it from those goat herders in Palestine. 
And then he sold it. And then over the next decade, more and more people went to discover in those caves ancient texts. And what happened in those ancient texts, the, the greatest example is the book of Isaiah, an entire scroll of Isaiah, written 2,000, no, uh, about 1,400 years earlier than any scroll of Isaiah we currently possessed in the 1940s. And so people would argue like the game of telephone. They'd say, well, how do you know the Bible actually says what it says? Because for hundreds of years, we've just been repeating it to each other. How do you know we're not changing it every time we make a new version? And so what happened? We get the book of Isaiah, 1,400 years earlier than any previous writing of Isaiah. And what do we find in that whole text of Isaiah? It says what all of our versions of Isaiah in the Hebrew language say. No changes over 1,400 years. It affirms we have the Word of God. Because what Christians have is not a massive game of telephone. They have a preserved Word of God. Recorded. Not just by one person in one room, but Christians throughout the world. Particularly after the New Testament. Recording again and again. And discoveries that go on where this is discovered from Christians in this area of the world. And this is discovered from Christians all the way over here in another part of the world. And guess what? Their manuscripts match. They say similar, not just similar, but the same things. But in that, all of that manuscript evidence, there are at times discrepancy. Right? And so when you look at... Uh, a text like this, Mark 16, 9 through 20, this and John 8 are the largest in the Bible that say this whole section. But the majority of discrepancy, the majority of things that we look and say this text doesn't match this text identically are things like the word if is misplaced or the word but is misplaced or you have a, a small error where it should say, like one example that many people use, uh, you have Jesus is saying in the Gospels that it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven, right? And then what does Jesus go on to say? What, what do we know that means? It means this is impossible for a rich man to be saved. And many make all kinds of arguments about the camel thing. And that, if you want to argue with Jesus, that's fine. But what Jesus goes on to say is he says, what does that mean? It means it is impossible for man to be saved, but not for God. But you have a manuscript, or maybe a few manuscripts, and they say it is harder for a cord to go through an eye of a needle. And you go, see, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. But just like in English, that, well, not exactly like English, but in, in the Greek text, the word cord and camel could be very closely related. And someone could just have been writing, and they write through a needle, and they write the word cord. How do you know which one's right? Cord or camel? Well, you have external evidence, and you have internal evidence. So what's the external evidence of that? Well, if you have, say you have 50, I'm just making up numbers at this point, okay? So you have 50 manuscripts of that passage, and 48 of them say it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. And you have two of them that say it's harder for a cord to go through the eye of a needle. Your external evidence is what? If 48 say camel and two say cord, it's probably a camel, right? It's external evidence. Within the text of Scripture, you also have internal evidence. 
Because some love skepticism. I, I even hear this in our church. Often it says, well, it's arguable. Guys, we're fallen sinners. Everything is arguable. I don't know anybody that doesn't argue something. So you could argue, maybe those two are right. Whatever. It's arguable. But it would seem from the 48 to the, to the 2, this is right. You also have internal evidence. So when you're reading what Jesus says, and he says, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then he says, it is impossible. What does he mean? He's making an illustration of something impossible. And he's saying, this is impossible. So the internal evidence would say, Jesus didn't say it's harder for a cord that could fit through an eye of a needle to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven because it's impossible. Well, that's possible. So you have both the external evidence, 48 that say one thing, two that have a very explainable, clear mistake. And then you have the internal evidence. What is Jesus communicating? He's communicating it's impossible for men to be saved, but God will save them. Okay? So that's just a, a quick, like, Menifee level, like Jake Dietrich, sorry I'm not that smart, explanation of manuscript or what's called textual criticism in looking at those documents. And the majority of any kind of difference are things like that. Things where you can lay them all and say, the majority say this. And if it said that, it doesn't make sense in the text. Most of them are just, just a word mistake. No doctrinal difference is ever from, if you take all the manuscript evidence together, and even these passages today, you take them and you look at them. Nothing doctrinally, uh, I don't want to say significant, but nothing doctrinally is challenged by the inclusion or exclusion of those. So the errors and things like camel and cord. Well, if it said cord, and we were wrong, and those two were right, and, and all that, Nothing doctrinally is changed. It's an issue of Jesus' illustration. And it doesn't say court, it says camel, and there's tons of evidence for that anyway. But nothing doctrinally is challenged in any of those discrepancies. What those discrepancies do is they actually affirm to us through manuscript evidence that we have the original autograph as close as we can. Because when you see 48 say this and what's there, what does that affirm to you? This is what Paul wrote. This is what Matthew wrote. This is what Mark wrote. And as you look and see, and that evidence comes. And so in this section, Mark 16, 9 through 8, the external evidence would be the earliest, those manuscripts that are closest to the time of Jesus, uh, of the original writing of Mark's gospel. Stop at verse 8. Not only that and external evidence, but you have the earliest church historians, uh, church fathers, and theologians state that the majority of their manuscripts end at verse 8. They say they end at verse 8. And they acknowledge there are a few that have these longer endings, like verses 9 through 20, um, some that end a little bit earlier or later. And so early church fathers see that and they say, it ends at verse 8. And they argue for that. So from early on, you have a clarity that somebody at some point 
added these following verses, these, these later verses on Mark. But the external evidence would point to one, the earliest, the closest documents don't include them. Church fathers communicated early and close that the majority of their documents did not include them. And then you have a later, like a family, it's called the Byzantine family of documents that all kind of work from similar sources that the New King James, or the King James Bible is translated from that, that does include them. And so then as discoveries are made, not the Dead Sea Scrolls, but similar discoveries, we see we have documents that are even closer and these arguments we see between the church fathers appear to be accurate in that 9 through 20 wasn't in the original writing of Mark. Mark ended at verse 8. And so that's, that's helpful. I think it's helpful to think about these things in both external evidence and internal. Other external, or external evidence would be there's diversity in these long endings. There's no, as you're going, Mark, from the beginning to verse 8 of chapter 16, it's not like all the manuscripts say different things. They're very consistent. When you get to these verses, 9 through 20, the verses that appear to be added later, uh, there's diversity in those, in the documents. And so, what, what's going on here then? What, what do we see uh, through this? The external evidence would tell us the book should end at 8. Um, the internal evidence would be, as you look at these verses, if you looked at them in the Greek, there's 18 words used here that Mark never uses throughout his writing. There's phrases and speech that Mark never uses throughout his writing. And there's even a title for Jesus. He calls Jesus Lord Jesus. That's a common writing for Paul, for others. It's not common for Mark. He never calls Jesus that in his gospel. Um, and so the titling, the verbiage, the, the way in which he spoke are different within the text. And then also you see within the text there's an apparent summary of the later gospels and acts. There's nothing, as you read this, like I read the passage for you this morning. I didn't say we're not reading this. It's not the word of God. I read the passage for you this morning because there's nothing in this that should freak us out. There's nothing in here that should go, oh no, this changes everything. What you see in these verses are a summary of what Luke declares in authority, what John declares in authority, what Matthew declares in authority, and what the book of Acts records in the beginning of the early church and the faithfulness of the apostles. The only thing in all of this text that doesn't fit is that they would drink poison and not die. There's no, I, I, maybe one of you guys think of somewhere in the Bible, but I don't, I don't see anywhere in the Bible that happens. So somebody at some point, this is, this is me speculating, uh, many speculate the same. Somebody at some point saw this text and said, we need to clarify, we need to summarize. Mark ends too abruptly. Mark, it's too quick of an ending. There's no explanation of the resurrection, what happened after, and all these things. And they're thinking, Luke does it, Matthew does it, John does it. We should have more explanation after the resurrection. And so somebody summarizes to put these things here later. After the other Gospels are written, after Acts is written, and with possibly, quite possibly, good intention, they want to help Christians out to go, because they think God didn't finish the book right. Look at the other books. It's better. 
Let's finish it that way. And they summarize what happens. They summarize John, Matthew, Mark, and a little bit of Acts and Paul's, because all of these other things about snakes biting them and all of that, well, we see that that's, that is true in the experience of Paul in the book of Acts. So somebody took a, a summary. Now, if you read this text and you go, look, we should be snake handling and drinking poison, um, you've got all other kinds of problems going on about what you believe about the apostles and what you believe about the ongoing work of God in society, what you believe the point of Acts was. Like this, this shouldn't freak us out that God could work in this way. And so there's nothing here that would challenge anything doctrinally. But the internal evidence would point to that. What, what do I think we can apply from here? This is, a, this is a stretch. This is not the kind of preaching I like to do. It's very speculative, right? But as I'm thinking about it this week, and I'm thinking some well-intentioned Christian thought, this needs a better ending. Some well-intentioned scribe goes, what if I just take what God has said other places and I summarize it for people here? That's a good function of theology. That's a good function of teaching. That's what I've sought to do this morning. Take things, summarize them, to distribute them and tell them to you. That is not a good way to handle the Word of God. The Word of God is authoritative. You do not tell God what is authoritative. You don't summarize for him and say, in order to understand what God has said, you have to understand this. I need to do this. You, you need this. You don't theologize over God. Right? You don't say things like, if you don't understand covenant theology, you can't understand the Scripture. And you don't say things like, if you don't understand dispensational theology, you can't understand the Scripture. What faithful Christians would say is, as you read the scripture, this is what is true. And then they come to terms to define what they believe. But those definitions do not define the scripture. Your summary, your understanding should be from the scripture, not your definition. And so you should not take, uh, like some scribe at some point said, let me just reword what God said a little bit to help Christians out. If you're struggling with things and you want to understand them, you should fight to understand the Word of God. Maybe, if you're in all kinds of conviction, like, like this dude, might someday like, man, I never should have done that. Um, but you know what God did through whoever's failure this was? He displayed to all creation the surety of His Word, even despite the errors of men. He preserved his word through massive manuscript evidence so that when people would argue, well, how do you know that book is true? The easy argument could be, one, creation. How do you know anything is true? What God has declared to you naturally. Two, special revelation, not just general. And look at the preservation of God's word. Look at the massive evidence of what is there. And how did he do so? both in the faithful working of His Spirit through men, and despite errors in manuscript evidence and other things, it only affirms we know what God said. It doesn't challenge it. It doesn't make it less reliable. It makes it more. That's how God works in providence. That's how He works faithfully. 
that because of Christ and because of the blood of Christ applied, he says he works all things to the good of those who love him. That you rest and you depend upon him in his faithfulness. And while at times it could be confusing and, and you could think, what's my role and what's going on here and how do I live? You just live faithfully to him. And in times in all of creation, he does things miraculously like in the prophets and Christ and fulfilling the promises which he made. And in times in providence, he does things faithfully just to turn everyone's head to say, look at the scroll of Isaiah found in 1947. Are you still going to argue we don't know what Isaiah really wrote? How foolish is man? How foolish is he to think he knows better than God? And so I want to encourage you this morning. As you read the word of God, be what Paul encouraged Timothy faithful in it to do your best to present yourself as one approved a worker who has no means no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth don't be fearful what the world is saying don't be fearful when others say how could you trust this how could you follow this how could you you know this don't be fearful to pick up a book and I could send you many that would help you to understand if you heard all this morning and you're like manuscript, original authors, all like we've got Christians at various levels of understanding their Bible, of understanding the truth. We have no Christian who has arrived, no Christian who has finished the race, no Christian who is done. If you're still here, keep running the race. Run it with others. Seek to be one who rightly handles the word. Recognize where you're at in your walk. Be faithful to help others understand the word. Be faithful to pursue it. If you understand things like we talked about this morning, you should encourage others with that. If you don't, you should fight to be encouraged by that kind of truth of what we know of the word of God. We should function together in community as Colossians 3 commands us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly that you may teach one another, admonish one another, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together to know the Word of God. Don't be discouraged by the world. Don't be discouraged by theologies and the words of men. Be encouraged and faithful to the Word of God, that you can be confident that you have what He says. There's a lot more that I, I briefed and skipped on my notes of uh, translations. How do you know if you have a good translation? Uh, where do translations come from? All that stuff It's all good information. Many of you are aware of that, and some of you have questions about that. I'd encourage you to ask others this morning about that. But my prayer for you is that this morning you would be reminded how faithful God is in providence and in care for his people, in giving us a trustworthy and reliable, authoritative, not dependent upon one experience of any man, but declared by his work through faithful men that he called to write scripture under the work of his spirit, and that you would hold fast to that, that you would view it with summary terms that we pull from scripture and inerrant and inspired and faithful, and that you would seek to do so rightly, to be one approved, one who shows faithfulness in it. This isn't about your approval before Christ. If you didn't understand anything about manuscript evidence until this morning when it was discussed, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You have a lot to pursue. You have a lot to seek as a good Bible student. But your righteousness is not decided by how well you can handle this, 
the righteousness of Christ compels you, I want to handle this rightly. I want to listen and obey him. I want to understand what he has said. And I want to declare that to anyone who will listen. And I'm so thankful for Faith Bible Menifee. Thankful for Christians who long to do so. Uh, thankful for in Providence a morning to, to preach in a way that I don't normally preach. So let me pray for us. We will sing together of his grace again, and then we will enjoy fellowship and encouragement, prayer with one another. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is good, that you are a God who is faithful over all things. We thank you, Lord, that you are so faithful uh, that as we gather every Sunday until we die, we will not exhaust your wisdom, your clarity. As we gather every Sunday to know and to understand your word, as we meet together throughout the week, as we read your word and encourage one another, we will not exhaust what you have said and declared and who you are. I pray you would give us endurance. I thank you for your faithfulness in carrying us uh, through the last few years, through the book of Mark together. I pray that we would be those who rest in the hope that hear the message that the good news of Christ has been proclaimed and that we would repent and believe the gospel. Give everything to follow Christ. Take up our cross because he has taken the cross on our behalf. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness in all things. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.